Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 79 of the podcast, the topic is futuristic AI. Our guest is Ben Gertzel, CEO and founder of Singularity Net and chairman of the Artificial General Intelligence Society. In this conversation, we talk about futuristic AI, futuristic applications of interoperable AI, Sophia the Robot, Singularity, Transhumanism, and on how to define intelligence. Decentralized, distributed, and interoperable AI and the importance of trust to progress with technology. And we discuss the future of human-computer interaction. Ben, I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing? Uh, doing, doing great, doing great. Keeping, uh, keeping busy as, as, as usual. The path to AGI never sleeps. <laughs> yes. I mean, you are a known figure, so I don't think you need a, a massive introduction. But, you know, since my podcast also caters to some people that don't follow artificial intelligence or indeed all the exciting things you've done, uh, maybe I'll just do a, a very brief introduction, and I'm sure that I'll, I'll forget a lot of things. But, you know, essentially, I think of you as an internationalist. You have lived, you know, everywhere. You have lived in a lot of places. You have connections and uh, and collaborators in, in on many continents. I, I understand you, you were born in Brazil, uh, but you are American, and you've lived in Asia for, for a bit now, and that, now you're back in the U.S., uh, of, of background, I've understood you actually have a, a PhD in mathematics from Temple University, and you've spent a lot of time working kind of straddling academics and commercial business, lots of startups. And uh, you are, of course, known as a very vocal advocate of this uh, futuristic type of AI that we'll get into a little bit. Ben, uh, tell me, what is it that got you on this very unique path? Well, I, I would say, you know, as you said, I was born in Brazil, and then I uh, I spent my earliest childhood in, in in Eugene, Oregon, which was a interesting place to be in the early 1970s. It was full of full of crazy hippies who thought uh, thought the the age of Aquarius and the revolution were, were were about to come. Right? I mean, my my parents were more on the political revolutionary side of things, but there there was just a lot of a lot of uh, innovative, creative, optimistic thinking around it. I think I, I did get from that whole atmosphere. I got the idea that you know, changing the world radically for the better and like creating a creating a new and better age was was kind of the thing to do. It was certainly a lot more interesting than just like getting a getting a regular job and uh, buying a house and 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 earning a living. Not that there's anything wrong with that either. However. I was also very interested in, in technology from from the beginning, and my dad uh, sat me down every every week to watch the original Star Trek with Kirk and Spock and and all that. I saw some of that like in the in the first round when I was a baby, and around the same time, I think my my first vivid memory is watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, and was like two barely two years old or something, right? And so it's I on the one hand, you know, I bought into we can change the world if 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 we try and there's radical improvement to the human condition that's possible on the other hand 
even as a kid, I was a bit of a skeptic that you could change the world just by like protesting out, out in the street and stuff. And it seemed like advanced technology had a tremendous potential. And, you know, in Star Trek, in the original Star Trek, you had, you had robots and the robots were not as clever as I thought they should be. Right. Like they, Spock and Kirk managed to back them into some elementary logical conundrums and so forth. I was like, wait a minute, we should be able to make robots way, way smarter, way, way smarter than that. So I think, yeah, even from a very early age, it seemed to me like if you could make an AI smarter than people and beneficial toward people, right? I mean, then, then, then you're golden and all the other problems you want to solve are going to be solved solved much more easily. And, you know, my, my dad in the mid sixties, he led a protest on a college campus in the U S it was a slam student league against mortality. So that they were protesting death in the mid, in the mid 1960s. That's, that's but, rich. You know, but debt, de- the, the grim reaper didn't care. Right. Whereas if you use AI to, if you use AI to design uh, gene therapies, you may actually be able to be able to, to combat death in 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 a, in a very, very concrete way, right? So I, I think uh, what's been amazing to me is just how fast things have come over my lifetime. Where in mere decades, these ideas are no longer like the fringe concerns of a bunch of crazed mavericks and and science fiction aficionados. But I mean, you you have major corporations, you know, putting money into AGI research projects aimed at building real thinking machines and into, you know, research projects aimed at therapies to radically extend human life and so forth. I mean, these, these previously science fictional sounding pursuits are now at least mainstream research topics. And then, you know, things like face recognition or self-driving cars are major areas of of industry and to a large extent operational now. So it's a, it's astounding how fast this stuff has become practical and, and mainstream. And I'm, I'm old enough to have seen that, that change happen to a remarkable degree. Whereas, you know, people today who are in elementary school or, or high school, they just take for granted AI robots, self-driving cars or, or a thing. And if you tell them, you know, Robots may be smarter than people in a few decades. They're like, well, yeah, of course. I saw that. I saw that in an after-school special already, right? But uh, yeah, it takes a lot. I wanted to ask you before we dive in a little bit more into the world of AI. What's what's happiness to you, Ben? What's happiness? Yes. Well, it's a very confusing and uh, badly defined natural language concept. <laughs> I think. I, I, I mean, like consciousness or life or intelligence, it's not a very well-defined word, right? So, I mean, the, there, of course, there's a notion of raw sort of physiological pleasure, which we all know what that is experientially. And it's very clear that maximizing pleasure in this sense is not what humanity is after. Like, I mean... There's probably more basic pleasure in Stone Age life than in in, 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 in the in the in the current lifestyle. Of course, then there's there are richer notions of satisfaction, right? Which can even even involve 
suffering or, or self-sacrifice, but you can feel more satisfied if you underwent pain and suffering to achieve some 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 greater good than if than if you had greater basic pleasure, right? So there there's a richer notion of of satisfaction, which uh, is hard hard to quantify, right? I mean, I mean, it, 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 it's it's certainly it, it has it has to do with having your expectations satisfied, and it also has to do with having your expectations satisfied for your extended self beyond your own body and 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 your own mind, and with the the other people and other organisms and other systems that 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 you're you're entrained with but we're complex enough that having our expectations satisfied is not fully possible and is not a consistent thing right because if if one of your expectations is you want to be surprised and intrigued all the time right and and another expectation is that you have some stability and safety like then there's a risk reward balance like in finance and so we have conflicting like top level expectations and then our overall satisfaction is like how do we how do we balance or get a sort of pareto optimum of the of these conflicting sets of expectations all of which we want fulfilled and it's it's quite subtle right because we're incoherent inconsistent systems so then if you say you want to create an ai which will then you know help people feel satisfied or do something in accordance with human values you're asking the AI to play along with an incoherent, inconsistent system that furthermore is revolutionizing itself continually, right? Because what makes us satisfied now is not what made people satisfied 50 years ago. Our values now are, are radically different. That's that's very interesting. Further to that, I mean, I, I saw from, I think it was our LinkedIn profile, that you know you you list a lot of passions and i can really relate to that and you say you know your passions are numerous and so agi is just one of them right you you talk about we talked briefly about life extension and and, and this idea of fighting death uh, philosophy of mind and and generally philosophy see and consciousness right you mentioned that concept complex systems more uh, you know obviously still in, in kind of in this vein but then improvisational music uh, and and fiction, also, uh, you know, is among your passions. How do those fit into this picture, or are they just like you said, incoherent passions that you know you I as mean, a to, person think, have? No, to me, as a as a human, the the things I'm involved in that I'm, I guess, more differentially good at or successful at, or just. Uh, Part of the whole picture. Right? I mean, I, I mean, I love hiking and, and mountain climbing, and uh, I, I, I love storytelling, and I, I love improvising on the piano and, and the flute and, and so forth. And actually, to me, these things are just as satisfying and just as creative. And I may think just as hard about how to get over a mountain or or how to structure a song as I, as I do about how to design design an AI system. So I mean to to me as a human, these are all part of the the same process of, you know, experiencing life and trying to create and 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 discover interesting new things. I mean it, of course it happens 
like I don't I don't think uh, I'm as good as a musician as I am as as an AI researcher, right? So so I, I mean I I put more time into developing AI both because I seem to be especially talented at it for whatever genetic quirky reason, and because I think you know making beautiful music it, it may bring you into a realm of. Uh, experienced immortality outside of space and time as you can get when you're on top of a mountain peak but i mean if you can create a superhuman ai i mean the the payoff is significantly larger in many ways right i, I mean i mean you're, you're gonna you can cure mortality you can create material abundance for everyone you can fix mental illness you can allow allow all of us to radically expand our intelligence and, and, and state of consciousness so what's interesting about ai is is the leverage right like for the for the same amount of work that, that you put into making chocolate or chocolate or faster cars or, or creating uh, amazing new music or mounting an expedition amount Afri across africa right like for for that same amount of work you can completely transcend the the order of of humanity as as we now know it and, and you know create new realms of experience as far beyond us as we are beyond bacteria right so i mean that's a, the the leverage once you get to a mind that can create a new mind that can create a new mind that can create a new mind i mean the, the leverage is, is 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 incomparable among among things that we humans know how to do and a lot of people superficially i would say at least about current ai systems they say well you know they aren't that good and by the way they will never or at least it will take them forever to reach any kind of human level creativity but in the way that you speak about your passions in music and and improvisation more generally you don't seem to make such a massive distinction between kind of intelligence in a uh, machine-like or or even like a structured sort of way or this more improvisational mindset well, that current AI right? systems current AI systems are not creative in, in very interesting ways and I mean I, I think that's actually that's going to change in the next say three to ten years and I think it's largely an artifact of the sort of business and industry structure that's driven the development of AI. I mean, until until the early aughts, most AI came out of U.S. military and some out of European military. And I mean, the military is not about free flowing creativity. It's about obedience to doctrine, right? I right. mean, I mean, in the same way as I mean, medical applications aren't really about creativity either. Yet you have to be kind of safe and 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 conservative, and then. I mean, now, since the internet era, it, AI is driven by Wall Street, and it, it's, it's driven by advertising companies like, like Google. But I mean, in no case, in no case have we seen a huge amount of AI, human or financial resources, go into AIs like inventing and improvising what, what wild creative things. That, that's just not what the, that's not what the industry has focus on if, if you look at the deep learning algorithms that are dominating the modern ai sphere i mean these are just recognizing large amounts of simple patterns in large data sets and, and and weaving them together and yeah as as a hobby i've been playing around a bunch with uh 
transformer neural net, deep neural net models of music. It's quite interesting. I mean, you can make a system that, you know, if, if you feed it, say, a minute of a track by, say, Steve Vai or Eddie Van Halen or Buckethead or some, some, uh, some progressive or, uh, uh, you know, shred guitarist or something, it will continue that. And, you know, sometimes you'll get something that sounds really cool and, and better than a lot of what those artists have played. So you, you are getting, and this is like a deep neural model with 5 billion parameters, right? Which takes a long time to learn, to train on a bunch of GPUs. It's all very cool. But what, what you're not going to get the AI to do now is like what Jimi Hendrix or, or Yngwie Malmsteen did or something where like, a, you know, Hendrix, he figured out for the first time you could use, like turn an amp way up and get a nonlinear feedback between the amp and the, and the body electric guitar. So you're getting like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're getting a sort of resonant sound that you can then work with. Right. And that's, that's a practical creativity, breaking boundaries and fiddling around with stuff. It, it was using two devices in a different way than, than any, anyone thought to before. And then, and then building on that. Right. So you're not going to have an AI invent a new, genre of 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 music with the current algorithm it's going to recognize patterns in what's being done and improvise and improvise in the, in that vein but i don't think that's a fundamental limitation on the part of ai i think it's a limitation of what has been focused on because creativity is you know it's scary and dangerous to military organizations it's not what Wall Street really wants. They're about ri risk minimization. And for advertising, the basic method is get whatever people have clicked on before and give them something similar to that so they can click on it again and again and again and again, right? So, I mean, you, you really, you need to open up the whole AI development world so that, that creative applications get more energy behind them. And that, that's one key aspect. I mean, but the that ties in with algorithms, right? So I don't, it's not generally recognized how much the bias in the AI community of what algorithms to work with is conditioned by the business models of the government and big tech organizations that are developing the, the algorithms. So I think we need, we need different sorts of AI algorithms for, for creativity and these different sorts of AI algorithms will sort of, they will both stimulate and be fostered by different sorts of, of, of business models as, 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 as well. And scientific discovery is an important thing. And when we're talking about music and arts, which are also very important and interesting, but scientific discovery is all education. These are also very important, right? The, the, these are applications like to make a AI tutoring system that isn't just boring as hell for your kid to interact with. They need to be imaginative and 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 creative and and playful, right? And to discover new methods of of medical therapy rather than just new drugs along currently pursued lines, you also need creativity and imagination as a, as a scientist has, right? So I think there's there are big niches like education or medical scientific discovery that need more creativity, but those niches are not where the bulk of of AI, R&D, money, and brain power are going right now. But that brings me to a curiosity then. Why, why are you then so 
dare I say, optimistic that within three to 10 years, the thing, things are going to change. Do you, I mean, is it because of work you are doing, you are making that progress? Are you seeing some other independent groups in the AGI community making this progress or, or is industry itself naturally or, or perhaps because of COVID or some other cataclysm uh, going to reorient themselves towards like social no, COVID, innovation? Or COVID is having just the opposite impact. COVID is increasing the hegemony of a few big tech companies o- o- over the world, actually. Like, I mean, Google, Amazon, and Facebook and stuff are doing so well because of COVID because everyone's sitting at home just buying stuff online and, and feeding their data into, the, into these, these networks. So yeah, I, I think I think, of course, I'm optimistic about what my own team is doing, but I think that there's also a bunch of other highly interesting and valuable projects in the the AGI research community, which have not yet sort of come into the limelight. So what, what I think is what happened with deep neural nets in the last, say, five to seven years is a whole bunch of stuff that had been around in the research literature forever. Like, I, I mean, I was... I was teaching deep neural networks in university in the early nineties. Right. And they were, they ran very slowly. Then the algorithms were quite similar to what we have now, but you just couldn't train big models and it took, it took forever. Right. So what you saw was advances in hardware led to advances in, in sort of tooling, which led to, led to, tweaks of existing AI algorithms, which led to radically superior functionality, right? And we've seen that with deep neural nets. Now, I think I think we're going to see a similar explosion in the next, say, five years with neural symbolic AI algorithms. We're using logical reasoning together with neural nets, with, with evolutionary AI, so AI algorithms that simulate evolution by natural selection, which is the most creative algorithm we know of. It created us, right? I mean, so I think some of these other historical AI algorithms, which have more potential for generalization, for creativity, for imagination, some of these other AI algorithms, they're going to explode just as we've seen with deep neural networks. It's just that they needed a bit more hardware and different sort of hardware than, than, than neural networks. Did. And I think we're going to see, for example, graph chips come out. There's already graph core, but we need things that are graph core is good. It's graph processing on a chip, but it's or it's oriented towards sort of floating point based graphs, as, as you see in graph neural nets. You're going to see graph chips that are optimized both for floating point and like discrete lo- logical based graphs. As we see these graph chips come out and get networked together on massive server farms, you're going to see an explosion in sort of hybrid cross-paradigm AI systems, which is going to lead to advances in general intelligence and, and computational creativity. And you're going to find a lot of the ideas that have been around a long time. Suddenly, like they're starting to do amazing, amazing things, just as convolutional neural nets that were out there in the 90s, suddenly around 2014, 15, started to do impressive things on, on, on computer vision. So I think... Yeah. I'm not optimistic about the industry structure at all, but I'm as it is now, I'm optimistic that hardware advances, which are quite steady, are going to facilitate increases in software functionality, which will then give an opening for the disruption of the current industry structure. 
So, so Ben, we don't need to wait for quantum computing to to take place here. You're, I don't think we do. So it, no, this is much more I, an incremental. You can make a lot I, of headroom just with incremental changes. Yeah, I, I think I think graph graphs on a chip, which is a form of processor in RAM, is going to be huge in the same way that GPUs were were huge, right? So, if you look at our our OpenCog AI system, which we're building a new version of called OpenCog Hyperon, and the, this is being done in a spin-off of our Singularity Net blockchain AI project called TrueAGI. If you look at that, I mean, OpenCog TrueAGI architecture, it's a knowledge graph. It's a weighted labeled hypergraph, nodes and links representing knowledge. And you have a bunch of different AI algorithms, neural nets, reasoning algorithms, evolutionary algorithms, all cooperating on the same knowledge hypergraph, right? So, I mean, once you get a really efficient graph on a chip, and then you have process, you have great interconnects among multiple graphs on a chip and a server farm. I mean, that will get you a long way. Now, quantum computing is going to get you even further. I mean, I mean, I'm not a skeptic about that whatsoever. I mean, I spent some time working out like how you would improve OpenCog's logical reasoning algorithms to reason on quantum amplitudes rather than probabilities. Like I. I have no doubt that once we get flexible quantum Turing machines, I mean, we're we're gonna we're gonna be amping up AGI to a quite different order. Now, it may be that human-level AGIs that we built on classical computers are the ones building the quantum-based AGIs. I sort of suspect that, both because I'm an optimist that we can get to AGI probably faster than we're gonna get large-scale quantum Turing machines, but also because figuring out quantum algorithms is insanely hard for the, for the human brain. I mean, it's a really fun thing to think about, but, but yet it, it really screwballs with the, with the human intuition, right? And, I, and I the, love that you say that of all people, Ben, because a lot of people who have listened to you or read your work you know, over the years, I'm sure they thought you were the crazy one who were like so both you know, advanced in your thinking, but also optimistic on behalf of a future that would be so different. So now that a lot of people actually in industry have gotten on board on this quantum train, it's just kind of ironic, I find, to, to see you. Quite, you know, if honestly, if I weren't working on building AGI, I would be working on porting AI algorithms to quantum computing architectures. I, th I think it's, it's very, very ex exciting. I, I think, you know, the human brain well, it probably does make some use of freaky macroscopic quantum resonance and so on. I, th I think by and large, it's not a quantum computer in the sense of, say, you know, Shor's algorithm or the, or the classic quantum computing algorithm. So, I mean, I think the human brain is, is, is mostly doing classical computing. And I, I think you can get beyond human level AGI as far as I can tell now, I could be wrong, but I think you can get beyond human level AGI using classical computing. And then quantum computing will take you even to the, even to the, the next level, right? And I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, if that's wrong, in the grand scope of humanity, it doesn't matter. It, it means you have to wait another 20 years to get to, to, get to the singularity. But I mean, if, if you look at what we see with the human brain, in, in like visual cortex, auditory cortex, hippocampus, all the parts that we've been managed to understand in a moderate level of detail. Like there's no, there's no hardcore quantum computing there. I mean, it's, it's 
neurons and, 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 and glia, it's classical diffusion of charge through extracellular matrix. But it, I mean, it, it's, it's not, it's not like in uncollapsed quantum systems, right? I mean, it's so that, and there, if that were how the brain worked, that would be amazing, but we don't, re we don't really have evidence, evidence of that at, at, at the moment. So yeah, I, I think, uh, but the quantum computing industry is doing exactly the right thing. I mean, they're building better and better quantum computers and uh, that's going to take some time, but we're getting more qubits each year, which is, which is, is incredible. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to talk more about the things that you are excited about at the moment, and and also working on yourself. But before that, maybe a, a more sort of curiosity on my end: who do you talk to and find fascinating in in your own field? I mean, there's a kind of an adage that says it's lonely at the top. When you have worked on this for 30, 40 years, and you start discussing, you know, AI or AGI with like the random PhD student here and there. I imagine that you feel like a, a grandfather that has to sort of explain everything and that, you know, that might be interesting, but just bring me in on your, your own brain trust. Like, where do you actually gain inspiration? Well, I've, from? Been, I've been very fortunate that I actually managed to hire within Singularity that my favorite AGI researcher, who is a, a guy named Alexei Polipov out, out of, out of St. Petersburg. And he, he had, not, he's not as old as me, but he had like 15 years of track record publishing papers on AGI as well as computer vision. And he had a book on AGI in, in Russian. So I've, I've been digging in very deeply with uh, Alexei for the last couple of years on designing a new version of OpenCog, which is OpenCog uh, Hyperon system. So that that's uh, that, 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 that's been quite rewarding because, yeah, one one issue in AGI is it's attracted a lot of iconoclasts, right? So I often said there's a, like, there's more, there's more AGI theories than there are AGI researchers, right? So it's just, so it's very hard to get multiple AGI zealots aligned together. So I'm really happy, you know, within Singularity Net, there's myself, there's Alexei, we have Neil Geisweiler, another AI PhD, who's a French guy working out of Bulgaria. I've been working with him 10 years, but he, he had his own passion, his own ideas about AGI, and we've managed to sort of convince him to, to collaborate on, on, on a group project. But beyond my own team, I think that actually the AGI conference series that I organize each year starting in 2006 has a really nice, nice community around it. So you look, say, Kristen Thorson from the University of Reykjavik. He has some amazing AGI prototypes and thinking about sort of self-replicating code. So he has a he has a code framework called ReplaCode. It's a bunch of little codelets which exist to rewrite other codelets in this whole network of self-modifying code fragments. And they actually got that to do things like control humanoid robots that talk to you, right? It's qu quite amazing. Then Arthur Franz out of out of Ukraine, I mean he he he's working on uh, AGI systems that try to approximate Marcus Hutter's AIXI AGI system. So Hutter's AXE system is an AGI system that he proved would work extremely well for general intelligence if you had infinitely much computing power. Arthur Franz is, is trying to kind of scale it down, right? Then Pei Wang, a good friend of mine, he, he worked for me in the late 90s. He's now doing his own project called NARS, Non-Axiomatic Reasoning System. I mean, we disagree on a lot of stuff because I like probability theory and Pei has his own sort of 
non-probabilistic scheme for uncertainty management. But I mean, he, he's been very creative in developing open NARS, this open source proto AGI system. And when when we went to try to implement temporal reasoning in OpenCog using our own probabilistic logic, we borrowed an awful lot of ideas from open NARS and how they had how they deal with temporal reasoning. So there's there's actually I mean, I could go down a long list. There's, there's, a, there's actually a whole community of people brewing their own sort of what is now out of the mainstream uh, proto-AGI projects. And what is, is the barrier? A whole, it's a whole separate community from the, from the deep neural net mainstream, which is, is you know, making more money and getting more notoriety in the press now. But, uh, I mean, is manpower helpful here? Like, were it to be that yes. Facebook and everybody else, you know, threw a billion dollars and said, you know, a thousand of our guys are going to start working on truly... Then we would get AGI much faster. At, at this stage, manpower and compute power would be very helpful. I mean, what, what happens instead is the promising PhD students are sucked into these big tech companies because they're exciting and fun and, and pay a lot of money. And then people are torn away from working on innovative AGI algorithms to work on what the big tech companies want them to work on. And I mean, that's... A, but, that's but there is a bit of a controversy here and you're not afraid, you don't shy away from that controversy, I must say. So, you know, the, the debacle around Sophia. So, you know, you created this robot... Uh, voice and Sophia got Saudi citizenship in 2017, and then big tech talks back to you and says, and I think it was Jan LeCun who like is in the media saying, "Hey, this is a charade because it's the Wizard of Oz type AI." How, what do you say to people who sort of are saying you're combining well, he's, he's you're combining young. very complicated things with you know somewhat gimmicky uh, ways to illustrate yeah. a future? I mean, I, I thought that Jan LeCun. He was almost, uh, if I was going to have Sophia dissed by someone, that's the best one because he's in a terrible position to do that. Like he's, he's building the AI that Facebook uses to sort of place like Russian disinformation online to make you vote for Trump. So then to, <laughs> to have someone using AI for probably evil purposes, like diss a, a startup for making, making an entertaining robot, it seemed... It's, it seemed kind of ironic to me, actually. But I mean, if it had come from Joshua Bengio, I would have been more hurt because ben Bengio is, you know, he's also a deep learning guru, sure. but he's, he's truly working on sort of high integrity, highly beneficial applications of, of, of AI. But I mean, I mean that, that aside, yeah, you know, Hanson Robotics, that's their own company. And... It's run by by David Hansen, who's a, a close friend of mine, but is is not a clone of me, right? So certainly, certainly, David has at times presented things in ways that were were different than 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 how I, how I would have presented them. Like he has he has more of a theatrical flair and a theatrical background. Right, to, he comes from you know. a Hollywood film background. But let's talk about yeah, that. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I think Sophia, it's not a Wizard of Oz thing. I mean, Sophia is not. Sophia is not puppeteered by by people most of the time now and then she has been it's she's also not an agi right and the the unfortunately the real story is sufficiently complicated as as to bore most people and i'm not sure young lacune has ever bothered to take 10 minutes to read what the real story is right because I, I mean the bottom line is 
like when Sophia is giving a speech, often someone just typed in that speech and, and she's mouthing it. When she's having a conversation, there's not someone behind the scenes controlling the conversation. There's a dialogue system there. That dialogue system, it's a mix of a, a hand-coded rule base and neural networks. And it usually doesn't understand what it's talking about, but sometimes it does understand what it's talking about, right? And so that's 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 just a bit complicated. And in the end, except for the beautiful embodiment and the sort of facial interaction and emotional engagement, in the end, what's happening in the back end of Sophia so far, it's not that qualitatively different than what's happening on the back end of, say, Google Assistant or Siri or Alexa, which is also some rules and, and some neural nets. And sometimes it knows what it's talking about and, and, and sometimes it, it doesn't. And I, I guess I guess there can be a critique that Sophia fools more people into thinking she's intelligent than uh, than you know like a Google Home or an Alexa Alexa does. But I mean Yeah, I, I mean I wasn't so interested in the critique as much as to start a discussion and and pardon me if I sort of framed it in a way that you have to defend it. I was actually I'm just more intrigued actually personally by the idea that when you personify a robot into a humanoid humanoid form, and especially when you use a fembot or or I believe they also call it uh, what do they call it a gynoid, right? So when you put a robot into female form, something happens to the public imagination. First of all, it goes ballistic, right? Hollywood goes. I, guess, I don't. Ballistic. I don't think it's about the female. I mean, that, of course, that has an aspect to it. But I remember when when we were working with the Philip K. Dick robot. Yep. She's a, a a guy. It's it's an old science fiction writer, right? And that, that's a beautiful robot David Hansen built. And twenty sixteen, I think it was at the uh, maybe seventeen, and in in Austin, Texas. And you know, we were filming some people interacting with the Philip K. Dick robot, and I was there talking to the Philip K. Dick robot and being filmed. And I knew one of my close friends was in the other room. Like helping control the robot, it, it was a, a chatbot, a dialogue system, mm -hmm. but it was being overridden by a human when it said something bad, so the human could correct what the dialogue system said. So even though, like one of my old friends was con helping control the robot, and I knew the software inside the robot, like I could not escape the feeling, like oh my god, I'm talking to the soul of Philip K. Dick. This is incredible. And then you start thinking, well, okay, I know. Stefan, my friend, is in the other room, but maybe the soul of Philip K. Dick is controlling Stefan's brain to help him type in what the robot <laughs> says. Right? Like you really, you can't well, escape that. So, so, that but, but, so you understand yeah, what I'm, what I'm it, talking it, about? It's, that it's a, it's just, Hollywood it's has exploited cool. this, obviously. You know, whether it is in Blade Runner or or even in recent uh, movies, right? In, uh, I mean, I guess Ava in Ex Machina or something. It, it does play it was an outright copy of Sophia. Sophia's original name was Eva. Then we had to change it to Sophia after they came out with Ava. Huh? Oh, that's interesting. So fiction and reality, uh, hand yeah, in hand. Yeah, I mean, so we're trying to ex we're trying to leverage this now in our project called Awakening Health, where we have a robot called Grace, which is like Sophia's little sister, and we're we're rolling out Grace to elder care facilities, say senior living centers, nurse, nursing homes, and, and so forth. So there, I mean, you're making a robot 
whose goal is to provide social and emotional support, as well as some forms of practical assistance to elder, elderly folks in, in, in care facilities. And I mean, there, you know, the fact that the robot can establish an emotional bond is, is good. I mean, that, that, that's what you want. These people are being neglected. They don't, they don't have enough positive emotional, emotional interaction. So, I mean, I think if, you know, if you use this to help support the, the elderly, this can actually prolong their life and, and, and boost their health. It, it's 100% a good thing. If, if, you, if you're using that to help sell people junk they don't need, I mean, then, then it's, it's, it, 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 it's, le it's less of a beneficial thing, right? So, I mean, I, I think that comes down to the boring conclusion that like with every powerful technology, you can use it in, in, in good or bad ways. And I think, I mean, that holds for AI, but it also holds for the sort of interaction experience magic that you get with these with these humanoid robots i wanted to take it then to another topic which uh i would love if you found a way to illustrate through something as kind of engaging as a robot uh a form factor i know you are really intrigued and involved in interoperability when it comes to ai and agi and you know i i have worked on interoperability myself one of the tricky things with that is even the concept is a tongue twister how do you explain and get enthusiasm around this idea that we have to work together and our systems need to interplay, otherwise we are not going to make this progress that we, I guess, at least you want and, and some of us uh, want and others, I guess, fear. But, you know, interoperable AGI, what's the big deal? Why, why has it not been happening and why do you see an opening yeah, towards yeah, this, it this now? Is, this is really interesting and th this is something that, I'm currently actively working on within SingularityNet, actually. So I, I've talked a lot with uh, Charles Hoskinson, who runs the Cardano blockchain project, uh, about this because they one of the we're porting our SingularityNet like blockchain-based AI platform, which is sort of a decentralized, democratic-controlled infrastructure that allows a bunch of AIs to run on it and and co and cooperate together to solve problems. We're in the midst of porting most of that network from Ethereum blockchain to Cardano blockchain. Now, for many things, that doesn't matter, like the OpenCog AGI engine running behind the, the Grace nursing robot and so on. I mean, that's going to be the same AI algorithms, whether you're running it on SingularityNet or on a centralized platform. It's going to be the same AI algorithm, whether you run it on Ethereum or, or, or Cardano, right? But there's, there's some interesting advantages that come from a decentralized platform, which is you can pull in third-party AIs written by other, other people, and then, then they can help on the back end, right? So say, say you're using an OpenCog system built by TrueAGI, Singularity Studio, whatever, to control these awakening health robots, right? So, but if it's deployed in, if this OpenCog system is deployed on SingularityNet, then let's say, someone asks the robot a, a question on, uh, say, gardening or something, right? You know, if you have a, a gardening AI bot, which knows a lot about gardening, that's in SingularityNet, you know, it can then help answer that question. And we didn't have to train a neural model to be knowledgeable on that particular topic. Or, I mean, more important example, let's say someone is speaking with slurred speech because they have Parkinson's or something. Maybe our, our standard speech to text that we're using doesn't work well for slurred speech. If someone else has a 
has trained a model on slurred speech. They put it in Singularity Net platform, and and then then the OpenCog system controlling the robot can reference that that slurred speech interpreting AI, right? But to make that work, you need the different AIs in this decentralized network to have a fairly sophisticated description language describe what they can do and and how and, and with what constraints to to each other and Cardano platform because their infrastructure, their smart contracts are in the Haskell language, which is a functional programming language, we're finding it easy to sort of implement an AI description language in, in, that, in that context using some funky computer science from a dependent type theory and, and, and so forth. So we're, what, what we're doing there, we're using the Idris programming language, which is a dependent type language integrated with Cardano's like Plutus smart contracts that are implemented in Haskell. We're using this to make a, a cool scheme where an AI describes, okay, what it does, what inputs to give, what outputs it produces, but also, you know, what it charges to solve which kinds of problems, how much compute resources it, it needed. Also, according to what standards, is, is it fair and unbiased in, in, in its processing? And, and some things about, you know, concurrent processing, what infrastructures can, can, it, can it run on? The AI describes all these aspects of its processing to other AIs using this AI description language, right? So, so we're we're creating a description language for AIs to describe all the properties of what they can do to to other AIs, and then you need this for data as well, right? So, if the AI is looking at a data set, you need a description of what's in the data set in some standard data ontology, so the AI can decide if it wants to pay for use of that data set, and that's what it needs. So, we're developing this. We're developing this now for use just within SingularityNet platform, but we're also talking to folks from various standard groups within IEEE about, so how, you know, once we've rolled this out within SingularityNet, what would be the path to try to get this adopted as, as, a, as a broader standard beyond SingularityNet? And that's, I think that's critically needed if we're looking at, you know, building sort of societies of AI minds, societies of AI algorithms that, that, that are coming together to have an emergent intelligence where the, the intelligence of the whole exceeds the sum of the intelligences of the, of the parts, right? Because, I mean, what, one, one route to AGI or to highly functional neural AI systems is where you just create a monolithic system that you one party built themselves. Another route is you have multiple AIs written by different people and they're communicating, cooperating together and the intelligence comes out emergently. It may be a, a mix of both, right? You may have one system that contributes sort of the most abstract cognitive cortex part and then other AIs written by other people for more peripheral like sensory, motor, or specialized knowledge parts. But if you have this collective combinational society of minds aspect to the the AI that you're developing, you need you need quite sophisticated and abstract standards for AIs to describe what they're doing to each other so they can they can interoperate. And this is not what big tech is pushing toward because they're building their own sort of well, sure. They're building their own stacks, islands uh, right? and their own stacks, obviously. But uh, w what yeah. are some of the I mean health would seem to be one of the more promising applications for for advanced AI. I think one of the things, one of the reasons why this discussion becomes a little opaque for a lot of people is that the moment you say AGI or general intelligence using computers, 
people immediately jump 100 years into the future and start talking about computers taking over. But you are talking about more near-term applications that are really helpful for people, like slurred speech or fixing you know, very near-term, real-life issues, and, and the fact that we haven't really been able to apply compute to it now. What are some of the other applications that you see? So you, you were saying, you know, three to three to five to seven-year time frame. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what, what I think is, so we're now in the midst of what I call the narrow AI revolution, where AI is being applied in all sorts of, 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 of vertical markets, but in a highly specialized way. And... You know, the next step is what I call the AGI revolution, mm-hmm. where we're, we're getting AI systems that can learn and generalize and imagine and transfer knowledge. And then beyond that will be super intelligence, right? But I think I think the path from narrow AI to AGI is going to be through what I think of as, as narrow AGIs, where you're getting more and more general intelligence in a system, but focused in a particular application area. So you have a system that's displaying more and more general intelligence and in coordinating a smart city or in, in say operating an investment bank or in 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 delivering delivering healthcare right and so or in providing education so in 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 healthcare you can see there's a lot of different aspects that could be addressed by narrow ais separately or they could be combined together into more of a narrow agi system for healthcare so we have these these awakening health robots that I've talked about, which which are which are doing uh, elder care, but we've also been applying, you know, machine learning for precision medicine to help decide, say, if you you have COVID nineteen or you have cancer or something, can we look at gene expression data and and your your genome and other blood work and lifestyle data? Can we use all this data to help figure out which which therapy will be will be best for you? And through the Rejuve.io spinoff of Singularity Net, I mean, we 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 have uh, we have apps that we're going to launch soon that can do pre-symptomatic identification of infection, like from an Apple Watch, which has a pulse oximeter and HRV, and from a digital thermometer. So again, again, you have narrow AI to analyze these biosignals. But you know, as you move toward AGI, you're saying, well, can we have one AGI mind, like one OpenCog system embedded in the singularity net interoperating with other AI tools? Can we have one AI network that deals with medical robots, with precision medicine, clinical trials, with, with biosignals from health apps? And can this AGI sort of get an overall model of, of human health in, 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 the, in this way? And I mean, there, clearly, if you take, say, age-associated disease a, 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 as an example, I mean, the robots from being in elder care facilities are learning, are learning something. And then clinical AI analytics of clinical trials for say Alzheimer therapies or cancer therapies are learning a different thing. And AI that's looking at data from apps from and people's Apple watch data, they're learning a different thing, but all this should be contributing to an overall model of human health using human aging, human disease. And that's, that's where the creativity comes from, right? Like that's where you get an AI that can do more than just discover a drug target, but could maybe discover a whole new way of, of addressing addressing an age age associated disease. It's from putting all these different sorts of data sources and interaction modes together in, into a common AI network. What's it, what what's really interesting there though is once you have say a narrow AGI for medicine, you know, let's say you also have an AI research project which is aimed at common sense reasoning say operating a robot toddler in a lab or something, 
if these are both using OpenCog system deployed in SingularityNet, like then can you connect the common sense reasoning AGI toddler with with the medical oriented narrow AGI and uh, and and then the common sense from one infuses the other, the knowledge from one infuses the other. They can all cross connect, and that that's uh, that that's how I really see us making the transition to AGI and and then to singularity. There's going to be narrow AGIs moving toward AGI in particular verticals, but they can all cross connect together, mm. which is where the interoperability you 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 mentioned uh, you mentioned pops up. So I'm. Yeah, I, I, I must. Uh... Yeah, yeah, no, we, I'm going to let you go. I, I have a, a a question and a statement. My statement is you have the coolest hat available uh, to mankind. How did you get the hat? And uh, what's the deal about your hats? Ah, uh, the hat, the hat has its own secrets. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not allowed to disclose. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll find out only after the singularity. Okay, that sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for sharing with uh, the listeners uh, your your take on uh, futuristic AI. It's been a pleasure. All right. No, th- th- thanks a lot for a fascinating discussion. Here. You have just listened to episode 79 of the Futurist podcast with host Ronar Neunheim, futurist and author. The topic was futuristic AI. Our guest was Ben Gertzel, CEO and founder of SingularityNet and chairman of the Artificial General Intelligence Society. In this conversation, we talk about futuristic AI and the futuristic applications of interoperable AI. We discuss Sophia the robot, singularity, transhumanism, and how to define intelligence. We discuss the centralized, distributed, and interoperable AI, and the importance of trust to progress with technology. Finally, we cover the future of human-computer interaction. My takeaway is that Futuristic AI will continue to fascinate whether we ever get there or not. It is a Janus-faced future the proponents of artificial general intelligence are exploring. Will it solve more problems than it creates? In reality, it's not a question of when we get there, unless we suddenly find ourselves needing that level of intelligence for an existential survival issue for our race, but how we get there. At some point, we likely will. But whether it will take 50 or 150 years, I'm less sure about. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 30 on artificial general intelligence, episode 51 on the AI for learning, episode 16 on perception AI, Episode 49 on Living the Future of Work. Episode 35 on Augmented Reality. Episode 47 on Sci-Fi Tech. And Episode 31 on Robotics. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.